Why wasn't that the movie, not this dumb dinosaur cop film? Radio Drome. Welcome to a disastrous behind-the-scenes episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the sick and dying Cecil. I am still... Uh, I still function. Not for long. Peter's out this week, so sitting in is our unofficial ghost member... Ghost member, that almost sounds dirty. Our unofficial ghost member, Fred. <coughs> Dang it, Cecil! Sorry. It's contagious. It's like an internet virus. Speaking of ghost members, though, go to adamandeve.com. You can use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME. We're going to talk about behind-the-scenes disasters of movies. Now, with The Predator coming out, we all know that no matter what you think of the movie, this thing was a just a cluster behind the scenes. They shot the ending three times, massive reshoots, rewrites, re-edits. They were editing the movie literally a week before it opened. They were cutting scenes. They were rearranging scenes. So let's look at some of the movies that were just... Total disasters behind the scenes. Now, I want to be very clear, though. That doesn't mean the movie is bad. I actually have quite a few movies on my list that were total disasters behind the scenes that are fantastic films. So sometimes the movie is still good, even if the production wasn't. What would be a movie that you can think of that you actually like, but that was that you know was just a mess behind the scenes? Well, the movie that comes immediately to my mind is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Terry Gilliam, if any man has ever existed that led a cursed career in Hollywood, I think Terry would be that man. There is probably nary a film he's ever made that's not plagued with problems. I think the closest was The Fisher King, and even that had some major issues, but comparatively, that was the easiest film for him. Baron Munchausen has a very famous or infamous book called Losing the Light. If you're into behind-the-scenes disasters, go read this book. Starts a little sluggish because it's all about who produced, who did this, who they talked to. Once you get past the baguettes of the Bible section there, you get into the meat of what is a movie that I don't know how it exists. I really don't know how it exists. It's uh, it's almost like a patchwork collage of what Terry's original vision was, which makes me wonder. I wonder what it could be because I love that movie. I, I really love Terry Gilliam from that time period. Uh, you know, anybody that knows Brazil, that was a cursed one. But there is tons of things that he tried to shoot. He did shoot, but they couldn't get it to work. Uh, Baron Munchausen was to ride a horse that was supposed to split into half. So the bottom half went one way. They, had, they could never get it to work. Just endless politics of fighting with the the different uh, – well, they had fights with the countries they were shooting in, fights with the, the studio, fights with everybody. Nothing worked. And on top of that, there was a very young uh, – oh, no, uh, Uma Thurman, who apparently, according to the book, there was a bet 
on seeing who could deflower her first. So even among the actors, things were just insane. I'm going to go with uh, the thing from 2011. I wouldn't say entirely it was a das- disaster. It was more uh, towards the end of uh, of production that it was a disaster where they had done the, you know, they filmed the entire movie. They did 90% of it practical. They just did like wire removal and whatnot in CG. They had a whole completely different ending. They presented it to the studio. And one of the producers who came on later in the game was like, this looks like something from the 80s. We want it and insisted that it be slick and now and all the, you know, other buzzwords. And so they went back and covered up all of this beautiful practical effects with CG. And the thing was, it was also on a rushed timeline because they already had their release date set. So they didn't even have enough time to really do, the, you know, completely do the CG. You know, they they removed a big chunk of the ending. They altered the ending. The producer just was an idiot and they released it. And then the people who watched it, they all pretty much had the same thing. They hated it because of the bad CGI. And oh, why? And so I did a video on it a while ago talking about how, no, this was done very, very, very much faithfully to the original practical effects, incredible practical effects. And the, uh, some moron at the studio decided to screw all that up. And so there is a version that exists that's complete with the what it's called the pilot ending. But whether or not we actually see that is probably very highly unlikely to happen. They fought and they lost and they had to alter the film. And it subsequently screwed up the director's career because the director was doing like commercials and he was kind of working his way up. And this was his big break. And then they screwed him over it. And then he's back to doing like music videos and stuff and commercials. And it's like he had a lot of talent and he had a lot of heart. And they really just they they destroyed his career. You know, this one douchebag just destroyed this guy's career by insisting on there being something there that didn't need to be there. Well, and sometimes when you have these these kerfuffles behind the scenes, there are lots of different factors that go into this. Sometimes it's like in that case or sometimes it's a producer or it's a director going crazy or it's something you can't control like the weather or like in the case of Apocalypse Now, maybe the country you're shooting in all of a sudden goes to war and you're now all of a sudden shooting in a war zone that you didn't anticipate or you maybe kill your cast like John Landis did in Twilight Zone the movie. There are lots of things that happen. Sometimes they're your fault. Sometimes they're not. Right now, we have two movies we've never seen are just nonstop behind the scenes. I mean, we got The Predator, but there's also Dark Phoenix and New Mutants, also from Fox. Dark Phoenix now, they've shot the entire second hour of the film three times now, and it's still not working. They spent almost half a billion dollars on this movie, and they still can't get the ending to work. And you've got New Mutants, a movie that was completely shot. Then they decided, no, it's too scary. We need to reshoot the whole movie. And then after they shoot the whole movie a second time, they go, yeah, I don't think we're going to release this at all. And you just go, what? what is going on here? What, what is happening at Fox right now? Well... <sighs> Obviously, this is, I think these stories will become more apparent in the future. We'll find out more once the dust is settled and careers are not in jeopardy. It it seems to me what we're seeing a lot in Hollywood today has to do with behind the scenes politics 
uh, one of the things people don't realize is when there's a good script or like say they take a novel and they adapt it or there's a good script and they bring it to the screen, they always say, wow, it's so different than what was originally written. And one of the reasons that happens is because a lot of different people want their name to be associated with this project. They begin to say, wow, this is a really good script. This is going to be a really good movie. Oh man, it's got a great director. Oh, did you see what we got for the lead? So what they want to do is they want to slip their name amongst those other names. So they say, hey, give me a change here. Do this. And then someone else says, do that. Then someone else says, hey, have you thought about taking this away and doing this other thing? And of course, this is on top of all the other politics, such as audiences aren't going to like this. They're going to hate that. That's the the climate among the country is real bad. Don't talk about the two towers. You know, that's on top of all that, where these people want their names to be associated. And like, so when it comes out and it's a hit, oh, See that thing? I did that. Yeah, I'm that the one responsible. That was my contribution. Yeah, and that's what happens to the majority of these is that there's, you know, the classic too many cooks, but really they're not cooking. They're just more or less walking up to something already made and just throwing, like, spices and stuff into it that's just not necessary just so they can put their name on the stupid thing. And I think that might be more than anything really what's going on. This really comes down to something. I mean, it started a while ago with Fox is really, really bending over try, like to take it from Disney. They are trying to make them... They're at, presenting. They're presenting. They really are. They want to make everything as appealing as possible so that Disney does buy them. Because for whatever reason, somebody, somebody on the board of executives just wants a payout and just wants out. Cutting and slashing and burning all the crops, just whatever we have to do to just make it appealing to Disney. What we take, take that, uh, that movie that was going to be R rated, make it PG 13. Reshoot the whole thing if you have to. Take that other thing. What there was some edgy com content in there. There was something that uh you know, I'm talking Predator now. There was some content in there that might not fly too well with Disney. They might not like it under their banner. It might make them a little skittish. Just get rid of it. Reshoot it. Completely change it. They're actually inadvertently making themselves less appealing to Disney because by doing all this, there's all these horror stories and then their movies are going to be underperforming and it's going to make Disney less likely to buy. Now, granted, in the end, more than likely Disney is going to buy them, which I still think is a terrible idea because uh, I think we've said it on here before. If the Disney Fox merger goes through, Disney will own 45 percent of all entertainment. That is terrifying to have that much control coming from one company because it's not going to end there. They'll, they're going to, you know, cause then they own that and then they're going to see who else they can purchase. And, uh, it may not be for a while cause that's a big, you know, it's a big paycheck. It's, it sounds you know, the sky is falling kind of thing, but this is real. This is not something that is, that is being made up. This is very much Disney's new agenda of just purchasing everything and making everything very homogenized. And if you're looking at a lot of their movies and stuff, yes, I've liked a lot of their movies. I've been very pleased with a lot of the early MCU, but I find that a lot of the more recent MCU is all following a very similar formula. It's the safe formula. And I have a feeling that if they buy Fox, we're going to get a lot of their properties, but it's going to be under the new safe Disney property. So we're going to have 
another PG-13 diehard. We're going to have a PG-13 alien. We're going to have a PG-13 predator. Probably going to appeal to like the demographic, but they're just going to be milk toast and it's going to piss off a lot of the pre-existing fan base. And it's just going to kind of go down, you know, eventually draw things further down the tube. The whole Fox thing is just a, a complete mess because the, the executives who are trying to get the money, it's not going to hurt their careers, but it's going to hurt Fred Decker and, uh, and, and Frank and, uh, a, a Black's career. Yeah, Shane Black's but, career. Well, I'm not going to go into it too much, but yeah, The Predator is the worst film in that franchise and it you can you the studio meddling is all over it. But with something like like with Dark Phoenix and New Mutants and, and this even goes to Solo as well. Now, I'm for the director, but on studio films you often hear about, you know, on-set interference. How do you make Dark Phoenix and turn in your cut at 150 million bucks? And no one at Fox looked at it before you spent all that money. How do you have New Mutants as a completed film before anyone at the executive level looked at it? Solo, they were 80 to 85% done before the, before Disney even looked at Lord and Miller's cut and went, what the hell are you doing? How, how do you, how does corporate not look at this and catch horrible mistakes like this earlier? We can't forget that a, a, tr- a movie is a process that takes a very long time to make. It, it's, it's in pre-production. Well, there's pre-pre-production where they're, you know, putting the script together, deciding if they can even do this, getting the cast. Then they go into pre-production and then they start shooting. So the, the train is even longer than what we're thinking. It's been going on for a long time, which means tastes and attitudes in our world can seemingly change, tying into what Cecil was talking about to where this whole, oh, we have to cater to the studio, which that studio is currently catering to these particular tastes. You're, you're in a position where you cannot win. You're, you're literally playing a chess game, you know, that's designed for two people, but you're playing with 16 players on each side. No one can, can kowtow to every single taste, preference, and political sphere in the world. It's impossible. Yeah, and we can't take away that, that now we have to constantly think, hey, will China like this? I mean, it's ridiculous. You've got too many thought processes going into just something as simple as tell a friggin' story. There's not just that, but you also, let's contrast this with the late 70s. Look at Apocalypse Now. That is a a famous cluster. Some of that is Francis Ford Coppola's fault. Some of it is not. But you look at, I think it was Warner Brothers. It was either Warner Brothers or Paramount that put out Apocalypse Now. They just kept letting him. They're like, you know what? We trust Coppola. Just give him more money. You know, like with Michael Cimino on Heaven's Gate. It was, look, we trust the director's vision. Write him another check. Those days are done, aren't they? Those days you don't have anymore, do we? Oh, without no. question, that's gone. There's a video I'm working on right now. I don't want to say what it is yet because uh, it's not done. But um, essentially, the the thing was the studio at the time was doing two movies. They were doing a big movie and they were doing a little movie. They were both expensive, but one was really expensive and the other one was not as expensive. They were having major problems with the big movie. All the executives and all the attention was directed at the big movie. Meanwhile, the little movie was going nuts. Like they were just, they were just, you know, they were completely, uh, they were like that scene in, uh, Kindergarten Cop where, uh, the, Shut the, up! yeah, 
where where they left the children alone and they're just running rampant. And so they were just doing whatever. By the time this the the other movie was done and the studio came back and they saw what that happened, they, oh my god, what is this? I think that is one of the cases of where uh you have a, a lot of studios where they have so many different poles in the fire, so to speak, and they have one that is the big one and they're paying attention to that one and then they're not paying attention to the other one. And then the other one, you know, kind of ends up going off the rails. I also am very much in favor of let the director do their thing. I do agree that there needs to be a a mixture of producer and director working together. That's why you have sometimes you have some directors who find a producer that works really well with them and they continue to work with them because they know that they both will keep each other in check, that there's a nice checks and balances. Hey, I'm going to do this. Well, maybe don't do this, maybe do this. And they kind of meet somewhere in the middle. So that's one of the big things with filmmaking. So you need that. You don't like you don't want to have either side have too much control. But most of the time, I will err in favor of the director because really it's their name on the property. And at the end of the day, like they're the one that's going to take the heat over whether or not this succeeds. I think that that is a major thing. So I think that's one of the reasons why they have something like that. Now, I think that it's crazy that a big movie like Solo, you know, had to be reshot twice. They had three directors on it. And in the end, it still ends up being kind of a mediocre film when we're at the point now where if you're in, you're sinking hundreds of millions of dollars into a film, you can't really afford for it to be mediocre, especially when it has Star Wars attached to it. Th- that's so, true. That's true. But you also, the director can't have too much power because I know this is going to sound weird coming from me, but sometimes a director goes crazy because you got to remember they're spending someone else's money. Look at like Ridley Scott on Blade Runner, which is one of my all time favorite films. He needed someone to tell him enough. Ridley. He was doing up to 65 takes of some dialogue scenes because the shadows in the background weren't landing just right. That's 65 takes that have to be film processed and paid for, and you're going to use one of them. When you're you're doing double-digit takes of a dialogue scene, and according to Bud Yorkin, they're all virtually identical, the director's going crazy and needs a producer to go, no, you're done with this scene. You've got enough. James Cameron is famous for that, too, doing 30, 40 takes of a scene, and it's like, no, Jim, enough. It's it's true. The a lot of the biggest problem we're having here is the disparagement between the time period of when some of these films are being made versus now. That golden era between the late seventies and early eighties was in in some ways similar to now in that it was still the time when the the old guard was still around. The old studio heads were still there. And a few of them were willing to take chances. Alan Ladd Jr. being probably one of the most famous now. The, the truth is that even though they were willing to take chances, they didn't really know or understand what was going on. I think that that was part of it. Ridley Scott had done like the duelist, then went on to Alien, and then Blade Runner. You know, it, it, how do I want to say this? Uh, rolled uphill. Uh, it was this small director that suddenly, hey, this guy looks like he's going to be somebody, got to do Alien, and there was a lot of complaints on Alien. People talk about Blade Runner, but the same things were said on Alien. So I think he was just this director used to smaller movies 
And he was treating the big movies like the little movies. Whereas you flip that, look at what George Lucas was doing. Cecil's scenario that he was just talking about reminded me of uh, the Damnation Alley Star Wars thing. Damnation Alley and mm-hmm. Star Wars were both 20th Century Fox. Damnation Alley is a disaster. I still kind of enjoy it myself. But it got all it of the attention. to it, but it's not a good movie. No, it's not a good movie. In fact, you look at it and it's it's just sort of perplexing on a lot of fronts. And that's the one that's, that's the, that's the horse 20th Century Fox is backing. You look at Star Wars, these kids were going crazy. And that's when the best footage started to come out of what become ILM. I, I think, I guess the point is that there is that fine point between madness and, and, and control. And that balance has to be struck. And that's where this gold comes from. And nobody knows. And today it seems as if they're, I don't know, they're, they, they think they've got the philosopher's stone. <laughs> they're going to turn every product into that. And it, you can't. It, it's not something that can be contained in a bottle. You have to take risks. You have to take chances. And as was stated, sometimes you just have to trust your director and you're going to have hits. You're going to have misses. And look, for all the control the studios have, they're still kicking out bombs people so why not take the chance but you also you you have stuff like i pointed out with scott you know he decided you know what i'm just going to keep doing take after take after take after take after take and we'll we'll spend all day shooting what's going to wind up to be three seconds on on film but michael sarney did the same thing on myra breckenridge he spent over 30 hours photographing a cake so it would look just right for the three seconds that it's in myra breckenridge and you just go, do you realize how much money has been wasted on this crew and this cast sitting here so you could photograph a cake for over a day? This is ridiculous. Or you have stuff like Ken Russell on Altered States. He was determined. You know, th- this one was more of an egotistical director. Patty Chayefsky wrote the book, and Patty Chayefsky had it written into his contract. Not a single word could be changed without Chayefsky's okay. And, you know, he was one of the few people who could actually get that written into a contract. Ken Russell came in there, you know, he's a, he's a drunk. He was so, literally so drunk on the set of that film that he had to be held up by crew members to direct. That he was so drunk he couldn't stand up straight. And he said, no writer's gonna tell me how to make my movie. So he rewrote the dialogue. He decided that he was going to force the studio to use his takes with his new dialogue by having the actors screw up Chayefsky's dialogue by, like, starting one sentence like this and then yelling the rest of it so it would be unusable in editing. You know, and then they'll have to use my my takes because I'm the director. When you've got that kind of an attitude going on from a director, the movie can't turn out good. It's just, it's never going to. It's a disaster behind the scene. If you go back and watch it, there are a lot of times where like he made the, uh, he made the actors say the dialogue a very weird way. And it, it gives the film this even more uncomfortable feeling. So it's, it ends up kind of working, but I mean, but the, the problem is we'll never know how the movie should have been because of these changes. And but we it, do know how the movie shouldn't have been when you watch it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny that Fox was focused so hard on Damnation Alley because Star Wars ended up coming back and saving them because if Damn, Damnation Alley cost them all their money. And if Fox, if um, Star Wars ended up failing, Fox would have gone out of business. It really kind of ended up being beneficial that they didn't pay attention to Star Wars and kind of let them, uh, you know, do their thing. Because it's possible if they would have meddled with that too, then you know they would have been uh, out of business. I think uh, the, the what really ended up hurting 
Damnation Alley was kind of like what was happening with uh, The Thing, where they did the whole movie and a producer was like, we need something to snazz up the film. So they added in the post-apocalyptic skies where they went in. Which I actually like personally. No, I think that it's neat. I think it's very neat, but it's expensive. And it drove the cost of the film through the roof. So really, as Mm -hmm. cool as it is, it didn't change that much about the film. And it would have been less of a hit. I mean, uh, a hit as far as, um, you know, to the to the wallet if they didn't sink all of that money into making such a drastic change so late in the game. If they had done it ahead of time, they would have been prepared. They would have, you know, blue screened it out at the time. Then they could have added it in. It would have been easy. But because they decided to add it in and, you know, after everything was shot, it made the price of the film just go through the roof. I'll say to address your to address this notion of directors that take so many shots. One of the things about the creative process that, again, this almost is one of those things I hate to say it like this. It sounds snobby and I don't mean it to, but you almost have to have filmed some things, anything to understand that when you write a script, you can storyboard, you can location on it, you can do all that. When you're filming, it's a very different animal. Directors, especially the big ones, don't always know, and and here comes, this is going to unseat a lot of people, they're not quite the geniuses we think they are. And they're just human beings. And they get there, and sometimes they literally don't know what they're doing. That's the truth of of a lot of this. And it's the one thing, of course, that's just not spoken, because you don't say that. You don't hear commentaries say this very often, but I did hear one making of Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. And we all know Stanley Kubrick is infamous for how many takes he does and a lot of the times it's because the guy just didn't storyboard and he would walk around and just think about what he wanted for his shots and he would say you know it would be based on the windows it would be based on the countryside what time the sun rose what time the sun set his theory was you can't pre-plan these things so you have to let them occur naturally so i guess what i'm trying to say is i think a lot of these directors when they do so many shots it's a twofold situation. One, they don't know what exactly they want, and so they're killing time until they come up with something better. And it's just they're deciding to do it while they're filming. And that's probably the insane part right there. That That's probably the part that's like, maybe that's not such a bad thing that's gone away. Do that before you're on set and shooting you know, this multi-million dollar picture. But if you go back and read a lot of the books the interviews, the commentaries, you hear that a lot. They'll, oh, we did it this way, we did it this way, we did it, oh, we scrapped all that and we just ended up doing this other thing. Oh, it's in the movie now. Oh, everybody loves the movie, the guy's a genius. You also sometimes just have a director that makes bad decisions. I don't mean like on shot composition or something, but like, like Waterworld. The director was specifically told by everybody that he knew, Spielberg, George Lucas, everyone was telling him, do not shoot Waterworld on the ocean. Shoot it in a studio, shoot it in a controlled environment. He's like, nah, man, that looks fake. That looks totally fake. We're going to shoot it on the ocean. And his sets kept sinking, and the weather kept delaying it. Waterworld turned out the way it did because he wouldn't listen. He was like, nah, man, it's got to be on the ocean. You really can't tell. Because some of that stuff was shot in a controlled environment after the fact. It looks exactly the same as the stuff shot on the ocean. But he was like, no, man, no, we're shooting it on the ocean, man. The same thing with, like, uh, like Ishtar. She decided, no, 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 we have to have these beautiful dunes. we got to shoot in a real desert. Oh, do you know how hard it is to feed and keep 
school and bring water and bring supplies for your crew to a real desert? Shut up, man. It looks better. No, it doesn't. When Waterworld came out, they were comparing it to Ishtar and they were calling it Fishtar. Fishtar. Those two films are always going to be linked because of the fact that they insisted on shooting on real locations, which the, the filmmakers and us would go, yeah, you want realism, but you also need to work in the practicality of how difficult it's going to actually be to shoot. And you're spending other people's money to go. I mean, like I, I, I think I think the Ishtar director, Eileen May, I think was her name, that she would, just kind of like Ridley Scott, she would spend all day shooting one shot because the dunes, the, the sand wasn't flowing right or anything. And you go, you know, if you shot that in a studio, you'd have complete control, right? But no, 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 we got to shoot in the real desert. Well, the other thing, too, with, with um, Waterworld, they overlooked a very important thing. They didn't bring ba- – they didn't have bathrooms. So they had to have ferries taking people to the shore so they could go to the bathroom and then bringing them back. No, Cecil, Cecil, you're not thinking. They could have just used the Mariner's little pee-to-water device. They certainly could have, and then they would have had water for everybody. There you go. Waterworld had uh, a lot of problems with uh, Costner's uh, ego being through the roof at the time. Uh, they made he made him CGI in uh, more hair on his head. Uh, I mean, there's just there was a lot of problems with Waterworld. When a movie's a hit, they're geniuses for doing the mad, crazy thing. You know, Predator was brought up. You know, Predator was kind of a disaster too in certain regards. They were also told not to shoot in the jungles that they did. Uh, McTiernan did it. The film has a unique special look about it because he was insistent they shot they shoot in that jungle it has a very particular look it looks great it's the classic scenario when the film comes out amazing they're geniuses when they come out the other way they're ishtar and Waterworld. world water world's much like what cecil mentioned earlier about taking a smaller hit ghostbusters the new one's a good example of this they they spent so much time doing the reshoots and adding new things to it that that inflated the budget and if they hadn't done all those reshoots if they hadn't had i'm not saying it would have made it a good movie by the way i'm just saying if they hadn't done all that and gone with whatever it was they were doing the film would have come out it would have probably done about the same amount of money and the hit would have been less and Waterworld was it, it, you know they got hit by a tsunami that's not something anybody can plan for that was the biggest of their budgetary uh pitfalls they had to rebuild everything despite everything else so you know if the movie it was a hit they'd we'd be all calling them a genius for shooting out in the middle of the ocean but then you also have probably the ultimate director making a bad decision i'm gonna go back to twilight zone the movie john landis he had never done a movie like twilight zone before or at least you know his segments of twilight zone before he'd never done anything like that he ignored all the warnings he was given you know the helicopter pilot told him you can't have the flame pots going off this close to the helicopter the special effects guys and as part of the trial one of these effects guys testified that that he he told him do it anyway it'll look great and then look what happened to me, John Landis is always going to be a murderer. He killed three people because of his arrogance, and I will never let that go. To me, that's the ultimate director making a bad call when someone literally dies on your set. Yeah, it was it was a bad decision. It was terrible. People lost their lives, and uh, it's it's awful. But then sometimes 
there are things that are totally out of your control. And I don't mean like in Waterworld, like Fred said, you know, you can't plan for a tsunami. But you have like Apocalypse Now, they were shooting all of this footage and they were using equipment from, I can't remember what country they were shooting in. They were using equipment from the country, from the military, they had the backing. And then the military got involved in a civil war. So halfway through shooting this movie, Apocalypse Now is literally in the middle of a war zone. <laughs> or uh, Island of Dr. Moreau. Richard Stanley could not have planned for it to rain, like, two weeks straight when they need lots of exteriors. He couldn't have planned on a star that was batshit crazy. Uh, he kind of could have planned for that. You know, he, he couldn't have planned for Val Kilmer to go throw a hissy fit back at the studio. I think there are sometimes it's just bad, bad circumstances, you know? Yeah, the, John, the the Stanley one is kind of a mixed bag. I think that there were some things they knew about. They said that uh, in the documentary, they did know when the rainy season was, for instance. Uh, that's a little harder call. It seems like everything on that production was a, just wrong from the beginning. The casting came about because the original cast all bowed out. They brought in a new cast. That new cast didn't click and we know the stories from there so i think that one is just a, a series of uh misfortunate events island of dr moreau thing what had happened was richard stanley was so instrumental in getting marlon brando on board that once they very unceremoniously removed him from the production was when marlon brando really decided to just go nuts because he really didn't want to do it in the first place but he believed in stanley's vision and when they took him out he was like all right well i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go nuts and have fun with it and see how far i can go i'm gonna have Feruza balk put ice on my head you know val kilmer was going through his uh, divorce at the time and locked himself in his trailer and it was just uh, i mean it was a, a a comedy of errors as they say that one that's one where if i had if, if i somehow like had like a billion dollars or whatever i mean you wouldn't be able to get marlon brando back because he's dead give Richard Stanley, the original equivalent, I mean, it was like 5 million back then would probably be like 20 million now, but give him like whatever the equivalent would be and say, use all of your designs and make the film that you were going to make all those years back then. Because the problem was they had, they had brought him on board to do this small film and things started getting out of control. They started adding bigger names. They started adding more money and it just kind of started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was like, this is not really what this was movie was supposed to be. And it ended up just being a gigantic cluster. Seeing him in control of it with a much smaller budget, a little bit more reined in. I think, uh, his no, they, movie, they were reined in enough. Been, it would have been, yeah, they were reined in, reined, not the REI, you know, having them do it on a smaller scale, I think we would have had a great movie. Because, I mean, if you watch that documentary, you look at all those designs and everything that he had lined up and then just see how much they, they just kept screwing him over and finally just removing him from the production. Uh, it really, it's, it's depressing how, uh, how badly they botched that production. Well, and then you have sometimes where there's just a screw up that, sets the whole film back was it blood rain two or three which one was the western one cecil i don't remember was that two uh, or three three i believe three. well they they built uve bull built this whole western town for them to shoot in and you know in the middle of the desert and it was got so cold at night a crew member forgot to turn off a space heater well when they came back to start shooting the next morning the entire town had burned down 
<laughs> so they had to rebuild the entire town. So, yeah, that kind of thing happens sometimes. You know, where you burn down the quick stop because the coffee maker's not working right. Clerks, too. But then you also have stuff like, now obviously we haven't seen the movie because it's not out yet, but like Orson Welles' Other Side of the Wind. This is one of, although I'm not going to discount Fred having Terry Gilliam as the most cursed director out there, Welles is right up there. Other Side of the Wind is a movie that's been in post-production for like 35 years now. And it's finally going to be coming out later this year. I I would call that sort of a behind-the-scenes disaster because of all the things that happened, some of it after the fact and some of it at the time because Wells died before he he only had he had the film 97% complete, which also makes me wonder what Netflix did. How did they get the other 3% of shots that John Bar- that Peter Bogdanovich says they had not gotten at the time? I wonder if there's going to be CG John Huston and Dennis Hopper in this, or if they're going to bridge it with like maybe animation and voiceover. Bogdanovich said there were a couple of key shots that Wells never got, so I wonder how this one's going to look. Probably popsicle stick recreations uh, is my bet. I don't know what they're going to do. We, we'll find out. I, I think Wells is... His, like like all these filmmakers, uh, I, it's hard to compare one to the other because they all have such unique visions. You know, Wells was a a, a much more well cultured gentleman, so his his work tends to be a bit more urbane by its very nature. Whereas Gilliam is just madness personified. I mean, the, it, it's hard to imagine what Gilliam wants because it's it's literally living inside of his brain. So you could see the studio execs just going, "What?" It, it was very much films of its time. I mean, Touch of Evil, he he had Touch of Evil taken away from him. It is kind of, he is one of those cursed directors. I, I really don't know what to add to that. He, he just, uh, he had a vision. It was usually a very costly vision. And I think what hurt him is he, he was a man of no compromise. He just would not compromise. And as we know very well now, for the most part, that just doesn't exist in Hollywood. Even back then, maybe in the very, very beginning, you could get away with that. But as time went, that became less and less so, which is why Wells became less and less so in Hollywood. Why he started drinking, gaining all the weight, falling into depression. The system changed. He didn't. And also with Wells, he had his Cursed of the Deep movie. He started shooting it, and then they ran out of money. So he went and did a bunch of narration gigs to shoot a little bit more, and then he had someone come in and give him the rest of the money for it. But then that that got pulled. So then he couldn't shoot anymore. So then he did more narration gigs, shot a little bit more. Then his star died. So now he had to scrap all the footage he already had and start over. And this happened like four or five different times, and you're just like, Wells, you were just never destined to make the deep. It just was never going to happen, man, you know? After that much, it's just a cursed production. Yeah, it happens. It, it it just happens. It happens on the smallest of productions. There's lots of little films that we'll never see because of the same exact reason. You lose your actors and they are in the largest percentage of the movie. What are you going to do? Unfortunate that certain things, you know, with the people involved, for whatever reason, they just uh, they fall apart from within. I think Orson Welles definitely is incredibly talented. But it's clear that towards the end, you know, he had run things one way for so long. He was brilliant. The system had changed and he didn't want to change. And I really don't 
blame him because uh, if you look at the way that things run now, there's a certain beauty to the way that things used to work. You know, they used to kind of put up the money and you would make the film and it would kind of live or die. Now there's it's so focus tested and everything else. You know, the film that actually gets released may not even be what you really set out to make. I don't blame him for uh, for losing his mind. No, Fred, when we were talking before the show, you mentioned Bonfire of the Vanities as one of these. I don't know the story of that one, so I'm going to pass the, the wand over to you for this. Bonfire of the Vanities is weirdly something you'd, you think you would hear about more today because it was more of a storm of of social politics that destroyed that film from within. Book was a very biting satire about society. And it was written in a time when society was very much like it was portraying. It, it was a mirror. So when they went to make the movie, they kept trying to soft sell everything. So they would change, if an actor was, say, black, they would change them to another race. If they were Jewish, they would change them to another race. And they kept doing this throughout the film to the point where what the book was about was gone and the making of the movie became as ironic as the book itself because the book is about how things like race, racial politics can play in our society. And there's this movie that ends up perfectly representing, ironically, what the book was about, which is why we ended up with the film we did. It's not like the worst movie ever made. It's just bland and very milk toast. And when you see it, you just kind of go, eh. Didn't I, don't I remember reading something about like Bruce Willis was a real prima donna on this movie too? In, in all honesty, it's in the book. And I seem to recall there were issues, but I, I don't think that was the worst of the issues. Uh, it was at a time when star, certain stars were rising, certain stars were falling. So I wouldn't be surprised. There was a, there was a few power plays on set as well as off. It's potential that he did. Uh, nobody really got along on that film, like at all. Everybody had input into their character. Everybody wanted to see this. They wanted to see that. They didn't want to be portrayed as that much of a bad guy, which, again is what the book was about how people are selfish you get the film you get today which is this bland milk toast nothing movie and it it just became a disaster of reshoots and hurt feelings and unreturned phone calls and so it's a dis it's sort of a disaster of a different kind there's no destruction of buildings there's no you know we had to rebuild the entire set because tom hanks burned it down it, it was just all social politics and what i said earlier was that you know certain productions people try to slip their name into because they think it's going to be big this quickly became a movie where people are trying to take their names out of, off of it well then let's talk about one of the biggest i'd actually like to see a movie about the making of this movie more than this movie theodore rex where they had to <laughs> leak they had to sue Whoopi Goldberg into starring in this movie, and you can tell she doesn't want to be in this film. None of the special effects work. The producers hated the director. The director hated his cast. Theodore Rex is an amazing. Read about all the behind the, the behind the scenes of Theodore Rex, and you'll be like, why wasn't that the movie, not this dumb dinosaur cop film? Yeah, the the behind the scenes of Theodore Rex, uh, like a lot of films, end up being uh, more interesting than the actual film. It like on paper, Theodore Rex 
like it could work. I think Theodore Rex probably would have worked better as like an animated feature, um, more so than a live action feature, but they insisted on doing it and we ended up with what we did. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. It's, uh, it's crazy. It's just funny that there are so many films that are struggling to get made. They more or less force that one into existence. Yeah, because uh, you, you look at Theodore Rex and the production of it, and you ask yourself, not just who was this movie made for, because that's a big question, but why did you persist? Your star didn't want to do this movie. The crew didn't want to make this movie. The director didn't want to make this movie. And the studio made it very clear they don't want to make this movie. So you're like... So why is everybody insistent you're making this movie? Honestly, I don't know enough about this one to say too much other than perhaps it was a tax write-off. And also, I have no idea what it costs to build a fully functional Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> well, apparently because of the three lawsuits. Because, see, here was the thing about Theodore Rex. Whoopi Goldberg was originally talking to the director in the studio, and she agreed, without a contract, to do this, and they have audio of her agreeing to do it on an answering machine message. And then when they actually came time to actually get her on set, she was like, I'm not doing this stupid movie. And they're like, yes, you are. We have a verbal contract. She's like, the hell you are. So they sued her into doing this. She sued them to not do it, and they eventually had to pay her an astronomical amount to be in the movie that she clearly didn't want to be in, that they each sued each other over, and she was and she hated the director. They they couldn't even speak to each other on set without throwing insults at each other. And you just go, yeah, this is totally going to work. This is not going to bleed through into the final film, is it? It's just the the whole thing is is just a, a again. I'm going to use the word comedy of error or the phrase comedy of errors. It, like it's it, she's the wrong person for the job who still you know did it. It was just the wrong film. It, there there's so much wrong about it. Yeah, but but again, you have to go. Even the studio didn't want to make this. It, I, I, I don't even know if tax write-off would be right, Fred. I, I'm thinking maybe they had some sort of the funding was was contractually obligated, so everybody was forced to make a movie they didn't want or something like that. You know, it, it, it's possible. I, I think the problem here with all the other movies we've mentioned is that all of them are kind of fascinating to look at. You know, none of the ones we've named really are so bad they're absolutely unwatchable well, i don't know ishtar theodore rex well i'm saying it's bad but it's not the most un i don't like it but it's not the most unwatchable thing ever and especially if you know the story theodore rex is unwatchable in my opinion it's it's not good and that's the part that perplexes i think all of us as we look at this and you're going the story's bad the structure is bad. There's very kiddish, and then all of a sudden, it's got Theodore hitting on a female dinosaur whose husband just died. Yeah, it's got a lot of murder. Excuse me. It's it's just bizarre. It's in that weird category of you know the lunatics taking over the asylum because there's nothing here grab onto. I mean, Ishtar was supposed to be like a Bing Crosby, Bob Hope type movie. You can see what that film is supposed to be. Waterworld was Road Warrior, you know, on the ocean. You could see what that film was supposed to be. What the hell was Theodore Rex? I, I say the same thing about Alien 3. 17 scripts, like, I think it was 10 different directors. You know, David Fincher was hired because the studio could pull his strings, and you're just like, there was no way this movie was gonna be any good. It just, it was not gonna I don't happen. Know, I 
Alien 3, I still enjoy because of certain performances. Charles S. Dutton is awesome. I think Charles Dance does a really good job. I think Sigourney Weaver is good in it. I think the overall concept and premise of it is very it's cool. It's also very flawed. Um, very, very flawed. But, but I mean, it is not like, but then you go and you look at Alien Resurrection and you're like, you know, Alien 3 wasn't bad at all. Well, I just, you know, I've, I've used this quote many, many times on this show, but there's that famous, uh, behind the scenes footage of David Fincher pulling the micro, the boom mic down and saying right into camera. I don't know how 20th Century Fox is one of the biggest companies in the world when it's run by fucking idiots. That, mm-hmm. that sums up Alien 3's production. Yep. And this was a first-time director of a film just going, you know what, I- I'm not doing this. I- I'm done. Do you think that this kind of thing is going to back off more or just get worse? I mean, like, with New Mutants solo, New Mutants solo and Dark Phoenix and now with the and with the Predator just coming out, I, I hadn't seen this much behind-the-scenes meddling and disasters in a long time. And they're all... They're almost all coming out of Fox at this point. Is Fox just a problem right now? No, no. It's Here's the thing, and I understand what Cecil was saying earlier, and I don't disagree that, you know, what Fox was doing was, you know, preparing the bride for the marriage to Disney. But if I could just say that's only a facet of the problem. It's not the overall problem. The overall problem can be even seen over at Sony. It's the same issue. It's the same problems. It's the same disasters. I think that we're seeing a bit of what we'll call the carrying capacity of movies, too. You you can't take this away. I think movies are just getting too big. There, there's too many people involved. There's the casts are too big. The effects are too big. Everything is a big spectacle and it's just getting too large. And they're spending so much money on these that quite frankly, the, the audience just isn't there for that many movies that are that large. I believe what we're going to see in the future, I don't know when I couldn't even begin to predict it. Perhaps when all this dust settles a bit. And this comic book movie thing pops. Not that comic book movies will go away. I'm just saying when this whole boom, I think it's going to end right after Infinity War Part 2. I think you're going to see a lot of change after Infinity War Part 2. I think you're going to see more of what I'll jokingly call the death of the middle class. You're going to see a return to smaller budgeted films. You're going to see big names making little movies again. Because the studios are not going to be able to survive making constant large movies. Movie theaters are dying. I don't think they're going to go away, but they're dying. You can't take away that fact. We're losing theaters. If you're losing theaters, then you're losing that, you know, seat per theater count that you always see. And that means that the that only big, huge movies that Disney can make could possibly survive that, as well as smaller films. I, don't, I won't say independent necessarily, but perhaps we could see a new independent, uh, I don't want to say renaissance, Revival. that's not the right word, but a, resurg- a resurgence, those type of movies, new companies rising to the challenge, young filmmakers grabbing digital cameras, making movies that people go, hey, what's this? It could happen. Will it happen in our theaters? I don't know. Maybe it's going to be the Netflix or Amazon or a channel we haven't had yet. I just know there's no way we can maintain what we have. You cannot keep making it. We're seeing it. These films are crashing. They're making 
hundreds of millions of dollars and they're bombs right there. That should tell you something. When movies are making hundreds of millions and people saying, oh, that was a bomb. What world do we live in? The movies are too big. They're just too big. And I think that if anything's going to change, that's going to be it. And see, like, I can't disagree with you. I think Sony as a company should be reclassified as a weapons manufacturer because they're a professional bomb factory at this point. Current studio system can't work. It's it's not sustainable because you can't keep having these three, four hundred million dollar tentpole films. And then, you know, you need billions of dollars. It's not going to succeed long term. You need to focus on your smaller films, your mid range films. We need to have I mean, I like a big film. You're you're getting to the point of where they're so big they can't afford to fail. I mean, they are studio ruiners if they fail and they really can't. Heaven's Gate literally put its studio out of business. Well, Heaven's Gate, that was one where they they the studio really screwed that film over because it recently got re-released on Criterion, the complete director's cut as close as possible to uh, his original vision. And people watching it now are like, again, why wasn't this the film that was released? Uh, it may not have been a hit, but it would have been uh, it, it's now is getting critically praised yeah, it, it, with, as opposed to the with, with drastically cut version back then. With Heaven's Gate, though, in 1980, people were not going to sit through an almost four hour film in the theater for a Western like this. I, I in a part of me says stuff needed to go. The film was so long. There was no way in 1980 an audience was going to sit through this. Well, I, well, can I just say that also, I, in that case, you're talking about a system that wasn't prepared to handle those kind of budgets. It, I, I, the, the, the length of the movie was too long. There was no way. They cut the film down, Josh. So it, it, I don't think it mattered. I think that one was doomed from the go. That The system just couldn't handle that many dollars at that time. That's true. Where can we find Fred trying to hold it all together? Uh, well, I guess right here on Radio Drum on occasion. Where can we find Cecil hopefully not being patient zero? <laughs> uh, you can find me trying desperately to, to regain my voice at uh, Good Bad Flicks on YouTube, uh, goodbadflicks.com, uh, and then Good Bad Flicks on uh, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. You can find me at 1201beyond.com and contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.